everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Janet Kastner Olszewski, the author of The Snake Fence. This is the first time that we have discussed a young adult or YA novel on New Books in Historical Fiction, although I hope it will not be the last. The Snake Fence is aimed at both teens and adults. It follows the efforts of Noble Butler, a 16-year-old Quaker living in southeastern Pennsylvania in 1755, to earn enough money to fulfill his dreams and earn the respect of his rather overbearing father. Noble has completed his apprenticeship to a carpenter and would like to train for the more skilled position of cabinet maker, but for that he needs to be able to buy his own set of tools. This is difficult when his parents expect him to stay on the family farm and he has no income of his own. We meet him not long after he has returned home from his apprenticeship. He is the I in the passage that follows. Prologue. What's this, Pa? I asked. Open it, he said. I untied the string and carefully removed the brown wrapping paper. Inside was a tall, narrow book bound in leather. There was no writing inside. All the pages were blank. I looked at Pa with questions on my face. It's an account book, Noble, Pa said. He is sixteen now, a finished apprentice, so they should keep accounts to know where they stand. Where I stand, I was still confused. Every time he makes any financial transaction, write it in this book. When he makes something for a customer, set down its value and how he will recompense thee. If he owes aught to anyone, write it as thy debt. Debits on one side, credits on the facing page. Then on any given day, thee will know thy worth. Where did I stand? What was my worth? I longed to know. I was thinking of money, as he always did, but I wondered where I stood on bigger questions, and whether I was worth anything at all. This interview is a special pleasure for me, because Janet was one of the original four members of my writer's group. She moved to Florida after about a year, and since then we have missed both her and her characters. I have followed Noble's progress toward publication with great interest, if from a distance. Since I first met him five years ago, he has changed and grown quite a bit, just as he does in the novel itself. In another first, Janet is actually here in the studio with me rather than on the phone. Janet, welcome. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Tell us a bit about your background. You were an English teacher, I know, before you retired, but uh, where did you grow up? What made you decide to write fiction? I grew up in Indiana in a house full of books, and when I visited elderly relatives, there were always books I enjoyed reading Louisa May Alcott, and later I enjoyed Madeleine Lengel. Although neither of them seemed to write historical fiction, I loved to read historical fiction. And it took me into an atmosphere, a time period that was magical, different from my own. And so I always have, since a child, wanted to write historical fiction. And how did you come up with the story that became The Snake Fence? One of my kinsmen, um, I come from a big family, um, who were Quakers in Pennsylvania in the early 18th century. And one of my kinsmen that I didn't know in Pennsylvania um, put together a book of the family genealogy that included wills and inventories of estate, family letters, obituaries, pictures, all kinds of things. And 
We are a family of storytellers, and as I read through this book, the stories were just popping off the pages. So I realized that my Quaker ancestors, and clear up to the present, had been involved, though pacifists, they had been involved in every war in American history that ever came along, and in one way or another, they were involved. And I thought, this is great raw material for fiction. So that's how I got into this particular story. And did you prepare for writing? It took you a while, I would assume, to uh, produce this novel. Yes, I um, had gone to several writers' workshops for a number of years before I started on this one. Um, I went to several Highlights Foundation workshops for writers for children and youth. Um, I have one previous book, which is a biography of a young person. Um, I did a lot of research in libraries, but I also volunteered at the Colonial Pennsylvania Plantation, which is a living history farm in Ridley Creek State Park in Media, Pennsylvania. And I volunteered there because I thought they would teach me everything I needed to know about life in colonial times. And they did. It was exciting. I learned to spin. I learned to cook on an open hearth. I learned to dip candles, all kinds of things that I was able to work into my story. Excellent. And does having been a teacher, does that play into your story as well? Yes and no. Um, I taught English and social studies, and so I cared a lot about writing as an Mm -hmm. English teacher, and I cared a lot about history and geography as a social studies teacher. Besides that, I spent most of my life with teenagers, having taught at the high school level. And so when I approach a story, I think about how to relate it to teens. How would they perceive this situation or understand this character? So in that regard, it really did shape my writing. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the snake fence itself. And uh, the cover of your book, which is very appealing, shows a young man in colonial garb sitting on a makeshift fence with a field, a farm, and two rather lovely sheep looking very interested and <laughs> dedicated for sheep in the background. Um, I actually know the answer to this now, having read the book, um, but because you do explain it. But I must confess that when I first saw the title, I did not know what a snake fence was. And in fact, I thought doesn't look like it would keep out many snakes because it's just a set of logs laid on top of each other. And uh, snakes could go right under that, right? So uh, please explain to us what a snake fence is and where what the title means in terms of your story. In colonial times, they had different kinds of fences. They had rail fences and they had snake fences and they had other various kinds. And these are Um, in use today at the Colonial Pennsylvania Plantation. So that's where I learned about snake fences. With only a microphone and not a camera, I can't show you how I interlace my fingers to demonstrate what a snake fence is, but it's alternate stacks of split rails that go along in a zigzag pattern resembling a snake wiggling. As I was writing this book, 
of course, metaphors, similes, all kinds of comparisons came to mind. And I tried very hard to express those comparisons in terms that colonial people would have used instead of contemporary people. And so there are, I hope you'll find other examples of strange comparisons in this book mm-hmm. that are from a colonial perspective. So on the colonial Pennsylvania plantation, there are snake fences, and we were told that they are very practical because they can be moved. With the regular rail fence, you dig post holes, put in a post, and string rails between the posts. On a snake fence, you can unstack these rails, load them into a wagon, and move them to another place. If you want to move your sheep from one pasture to another, you just move the fence with it. It's very practical. Yeah, it does sound very practical. (laughs) And so the title is symbolic of the indecision, sitting on the fence, the indecision that Noble feels in this story. And so sitting on the fence, how would they say that in colonial times? And that's where I came up with the snake fence. Mm -hmm. Now, Noble is sitting on the fence in part because he's 16 years old and in part because he's in a transition period in his life. He's been an apprenticed as a carpenter. And uh, in my introduction, I read the first few paragraphs where he's come back to his farm and his dad has given him an account book. And this story is, in effect, his accounting of where he is. So it is, in effect, an account of him sitting in the fence and how he gets off it in mm-hmm. the end. But um, tell us more about him, what, he, what he's facing and what he wants in life. Noble wants to be a cabinet maker. He's a very creative, artistic person. His father wants him to be a farmer. His father has, he had, there are five sons and one daughter in this family. And Pa's idea is to buy 200 acres adjacent to his own 200 acres for each of his sons, and then the family will work this growing farm together. And his plan is for each son to be apprenticed for a different trade so that during the slow winter months they can earn money practicing their trades. And all this goes into the family till. He didn't, I I learned this by reading the inventories of estates and the wills. He didn't will the land to his sons. His sons did not get ownership of the land until their father died because you never know how people are going to turn out. (laughs) No King Lear problems there. (laughs) That's right. And so Noble objects to this. He doesn't want to be a farmer. He wants to make fine furniture. And if he's working on the farm for Pa, he will be Pa's handyman, farmhand, for his entire life. So that's one of his struggles. The other struggle that he's sitting on the fence about is his values. He was brought up Quaker, um, pacifist, nonviolent, but there is all kinds of violence going on. Is it wrong to defend one's own family? Is it wrong to kill, even in self-defense? And so he's struggling with these major moral questions, as well as vocational problems. So the violence is going on 
because this is 1755 and Pennsylvania is on the brink of what will later be known as the French and Indian Wars. And uh, Noble, the, the, the Butler Pears Fantasy Farm is actually located on the site of what is now the colonial plantation, right? Or no. at least imagining. It's uh, in Westchester, Pennsylvania. It's, it's in Westchester County, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, the family farm is still locatable on a map. But since I was volunteering at the Colonial Pennsylvania Plantation, which is not very many miles distant from the Butler Farm, I decided to set my story in the the plantation because I knew where the furniture was. I knew how to move people through the house without thinking about it, and it made it easier for me as a writer. Besides, it's open to the public now. Mm-hmm. whereas the Butler Farm would not be. So it's not very many miles away, and the terrain is about the same, and the way of life would have been about the same. Okay, I understand now. So tell us about 1755 in Pennsylvania. What What is going on? William Penn received Pennsylvania as a land grant from King Charles II because the father of King Charles II owed William Penn's father a chunk of money. He had loaned it to his his father. Charles II didn't have the money to pay him back, and so he just gave him Pennsylvania. (laughs) (laughs) What it is to be royal. Yes, William Penn, being a Quaker, wanted to make this a a city on a hill, a city of light, and... um, a community of brothers. And so he came over here and made a treaty with the Indians that bound them in a chain of friendship. And the Indians honored this treaty for 70 years in Pennsylvania, where in other colonies of the, of the, the Americas, um, Indians were being exterminated. They were being pushed away from the land. This worked for a while in Pennsylvania. William Penn's sons inherited this grant, and they were not Quakers. They did not follow their father's uh, pacifist beliefs. They didn't follow his uh, monetary beliefs, and they exploited the Indians and stirred up tensions among them. The Indians, however, remained faithful to this treaty of friendship until the French wanted to take over the New World, and they knew that Pennsylvania was governed by Quakers, so they wouldn't fight, wouldn't respond militarily to a French incursion. If the French could stir up the Indians against the English, they could move right east to the Atlantic coast, Pennsylvania is known as the Keystone State because it, it's the wedge between New England and the South. And so if, if France could take Pennsylvania, then they could conquer the rest of the English colonies. This was the French grand plan. So they did stir up the Indians on the western frontier of Pennsylvania, and they were attacking settlers in vicious ways that they might have learned from the French. Anyway, um, there was a lot in the... Pennsylvania Gazette newspaper, Benjamin Franklin's newspaper, about attacks on settlers on the frontier. Vicious, bloody, awful attacks. 
And Noble was hearing about these. He was reading about it in the papers, and he was trying to make sense of this in light of his Quaker background. Um, is it is it all right to defend your family against murderers? Is it wh- what's to be done about this? And he's just sixteen, and he's heard only one side of it mm-hmm. until he reads these things in the paper. So that's. That's what he's struggling with. Um, people are very prejudiced against the Indians, and they call them terrible names. And he, although Quakers didn't, he would have heard that and read it in the newspapers and come to his own conclusions about what Indians were like. He'd never met one, but he was hearing bad things about them. Right, and there is something that is mentioned several times in your book, the walking purchase, that this is part of the unrest, right? Yes, that happened nearly 20 years earlier um, in territory that was not originally granted to the Penn family. The sons um, claimed to have found a deed to a further purchase, land purchase, and the Indians, who had only an oral tradition, had no recollection of this, which is pretty makes it the whole thing very suspicious because their their communal recollections of treaties was phenomenal. But they said, "All right, we'll honor it." And the deal was that um, they would send walkers on this uh, line in this supposed deed. At, they could go as far, the line would go as far as a man could walk in a day and a half. Well, the pens put an ad in the paper and hired the fastest runners they could find and cleared a trail for them in advance and then said that they would give 300 acres to the runner that got the farthest. So when the, the, run, the walk started out, the Indians were going to accompany them on this day and a half walk. And the runners took off, and the Indians called, Don't run, walk. And they probably were out of hearing by then. They, instead of going about 30 miles, they went about 65 miles. And then, to make matters worse, instead of from that point coming directly back to the Delaware River, they angled northeast. And so the purchase took about three times as much land as the Indians originally expected it to take, and they were pushed off of their lands that they had had for generations. It was a terrible thing. So they complained to the governor, and the governor investigated. Twenty years later, the governor was still investigating, and nothing had been resolved. So that was one of the major causes of the Indians responding to the French encouragement to fight the British. So against this backdrop where the Indians, the Native Americans who are primarily Lenape, right, in this region, they're also known as the Delaware. So the Lenape are unhappy and uh, the French are, they don't really appear in your story, but they're kind of running around in the background causing trouble. Right. And... There's also conflict in Pennsylvania itself between the Quakers and the growing English, or the Quakers are English, the the growing non-Quaker population. Right. And somehow in the midst of this, Noble is able to find a way to begin separating himself 
from his father's plan for him. And he does it by answering an advertisement in a paper. The advertisement in the paper was uh, written by Benjamin Franklin in his Pennsylvania Gazette in May of 1755. And this was part of my research. I, I was just reading back issues of the Pennsylvania Gazette, and I read everything, all the ads, all the death announcements, everything. And I came across this little ad that said, Wagon, 40 wagoners wanted to carry Indian corn and oats to General Braddock at Wills's Creek. And it struck me somehow, the name Wills's Creek was intriguing to me, and, and supplying the general. General Braddock was the British general who had brought the world's greatest military force to defend Pennsylvania. And he expected all of the people in the colonies to rise up in gratitude and supply his soldiers, and they didn't. He was so angry about this, he was ready to declare war on the colonies himself. And Benjamin Franklin said, no, no, don't worry, I'll get the Pennsylvania farmers to supply. So this is the background for this ad. So I thought, my Quakers wouldn't have fought in that war, but they might have supplied the troops. They might have thought that was justifiable. So then I looked at the list of who in the family might go on such a trip, and I picked Noble because he was 16. And I thought a 16-year-old would love to go on a trip like that, would think he could handle the whole thing all by himself. But Pa would think, no, he couldn't handle it all by himself and would let him go only if his older brother went along. His older brother was eight years older than he, was already married, and the two brothers did not get along well. I deduced this from this book that my kinsman had written. Uh, I, I tried to figure out personalities for each of the children in this family, and, and that's what I came up with. So this this part's totally fictional. I have no idea whether they really did participate in this wagon train, but that got my story started. I definitely want to get back to the the real noble and and his um, um, family because for all the years that I've known you, I actually had not realized that noble was an ancestor of your own. I knew he was a historical person, but mm-hmm. I didn't realize that he was your own ancestor. But before we do that, I'd like to get a little bit further into the plot of your story. Um, and people who listen to me know that I won't take it past a certain point because I want them to read your book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but um, I would like to know, because it's it's through this journey that, that Noble takes, and there's a map in the book uh, for people who don't know like where Wilson's Creek is, which I did not know before I read the book. Um but it's through this journey that Noble begins to question his preconceptions of the Native Americans and where he begins to develop um, a stronger sense of himself as a person. And so he joins this wagon train with his older brother, Enoch, who is neither one of them seems to be awfully happy, as you mentioned, to be mm-hmm. on the trip with the other. And then there are other people on the train. So would you like to tell us a little bit about who they are and how they interact with Noble? Right. Um, Most of the people on the train were not Quakers. Um, 
They were Pennsylvania farmers. Some of them were German. Some of them were Scotch-Irish. And it was a conglomeration of just sort of a cross-section of Pennsylvania farmers. The wagon train, besides the 40 wagons, included about 100 pack horses, and there were a group of women and children walking along besides, uh, following their men or for whatever reason. So I included in this story a young man about Noble's age who is traveling by himself, Peter, and Peter figures into the story several times. Um, one of the tag-along walkers is Molly, who is a runaway indentured servant going out to Wills's Creek to look for her man, Charlie, who had left without saying goodbye. She's one of my favorite characters, yes. I must say. <laughs> She's Molly, very charming. Molly woke me up in the night many nights demanding more pages. <laughs> She must be really unhappy with the published version. She had a lot more in some of the earlier versions. (laughs) Surprised she's not pounding on your head now to have her own book. Uh, Also on the wagon train was Jedediah the wagon master and um, Christopher the Indian scout. And Christopher particularly figures into the story later on. None of these people is Quaker. Um, And Noble finds that Quakers are not very popular in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. because they dominate the legislature and the legislature, being Quaker, will not vote funds for a militia for self-defense. And if you're not a Quaker, you really think the government ought to protect you. So this was a major conflict, and Noble begins to experience some discrimination for being a Quaker, which is a first for him. He's been totally with Quakers and hasn't experienced that kind of of, um, prejudice before. Uh, Yes, I just wanted to check this before I said something. So Noble goes on the journey and they go to Philadelphia and they start heading out towards Willis's Creek. And before the scene that you're going to read for us in a few minutes, he actually comes across a farm where people have been massacred. So he sees firsthand the um, effects of the brutality, the, the brutality and the, but also the effects of the policy for which he is being discriminated right. against. And right. so he, he, by that time, he's very jumbled up emotionally because on one hand, he does have these Quaker values and he does believe in the sanctity of life. And yet at the same time, he's seeing with his own eyes that, that these people are being brutalized and he doesn't yet, even though he's acquainted with Christopher, who does know a good deal about the Lenape, Noble himself as yet knows little or nothing right. about the Lenape. So this is sort of his, it's almost, it almost feels to him like a confirmation of the beliefs that he has been absorbing from other people. And then he, at a certain point, uh, he encounters a young man who is fallen down ill on the road, and he and his brother stop the wagon to rescue this young man, John McCowan, who is also um, an important part of the story going forward. Mm -hmm. But um, at that point, Noble has a 
um, the young man refuses to be rescued unless they also bring his pelts because he spent the entire winter trapping and he doesn't want to leave this very valuable resource behind. It would mean he had wasted an entire year. So uh, the brother helps the young man into the wagon because he's very ill and Noble goes off to rescue the pelts. And at that point, he has a transformative experience, which you're going to read to us. Right? Yes, thank you. Noble is standing on a ledge outside the cave. And um, by the way, this is a first-person narrative. I heard the screech of tearing timber. I looked up and saw a branch shearing off the beach on the cliff above. The limb, nearly tree size itself, scraped down the embankment and landed just a few feet from where I stood, blocking the path. My heart pounded. I could almost hear Pa saying, I warned thee, noble. Then I gasped in terror. I was looking directly into the hostile eyes of an Indian behind that fallen branch. He was nearly invisible in the mottled sunlight. His face was somehow marked so he looked like a wolf. The end of his nose was black, and his eyes were outlined in black to look like an animal's eyes. Black lines ran from the point of his chin up along his jaws clear to the tops of his ears. A terrible grimace contorted his face. He stood erect, perfectly motionless. My mind reeled. How did he slip up on me unnoticed? How many more savages were hiding, ready to attack? Was this the one who attacked John McCallan? Visions of massacred settlers filled my mind. Was this their murderer? Was I next? I opened my mouth to shout a warning to Enoch, but no sound, not even a squeak, came out. I fully expected a tomahawk to come hurtling in my direction, and I was too scared even to duck. I felt nailed to the spot where I would surely die. The Indian and I stared at each other silently for what seemed like forever. Nothing happened. Nothing. I looked more closely. He seemed to be about my age, maybe even younger, and he might be a Delaware, I thought. His teeth were clenched, and the muscles in his face worked in spasms. Then I realized he was in pain, and no wonder. That fallen limb was bearing on his left foot, and he was pinned to the cliff. If he tried to work his way out, the whole thing would pull him over the edge. There was no way he could free himself. I drew a deep breath, and my muscles unlocked. My first instinct was to offer to help, but I hesitated. I needed to get out of there as fast as I could. But this person was suffering. Shouldn't I help him somehow? Isn't that what I had been taught? All the years of Quaker training rose within me. If I helped, he could kill me. If I called for Enoch, that might alert the rest of his tribe. But he was trapped and suffering. Would he die if I didn't help him? Wouldn't that be the same as killing him? But if I freed him, wouldn't he endanger the entire wagon train? On the other hand, he was wounded and needed help. Wasn't that why we were helping John McCowan? I looked again at the Indian's set expression. If I ignored his need and made my, made my way back to the wagon, 
No, I just couldn't turn away. Thank you, Janet. Now we're not going to tell you what happens next. <laughs> You're going to have to read the book to find out. Instead, let's talk about the, sorry, the real noble butler. I know you did a ton of research for this novel, and there are actually quite a number of historical figures. General Braddock is a real person. Benjamin Franklin, of course, is a real person. Um, the Lenape chief, Tijeskan. I don't know if I pronounced that anywhere near correctly. <laughs> it's much easier to read than it is to say. Um, but also Isaiah Pemberton and various maidens, important Quakers in Philadelphia, where Noble goes for a while after he gets back from Wills's Creek. Um, Israel Pemberton. Israel Pemberton. Israel Pemberton. I, yeah. How did I Sorry. manage to write that down wrong? Okay, my apologies. Israel Pemberton yes. and his family. Mm-hmm. Um, but also Noble himself. What, what do you... What parts of the story are the noble whom you read in the records and what parts of him are created by you? All I really know about Noble Butler is his birth date, his marriage date, his death date, how many children he had, and where he lived. Um, he, He didn't marry Molly. He married a, a woman named Susanna Beale, and they had 13 children. During the Revolutionary War, because of persecutions of Quakers in Pennsylvania, Noble and Susanna and John McCowan and his wife moved their families from Pennsylvania to Georgia to escape persecution because the Quakers were being persecuted for not fighting in the Revolutionary War. When they got to Georgia, they found that the persecution in Georgia was worse than the persecution in Pennsylvania. Noble um, and Susanna eloped and were married by a minister who was not a Quaker, and so they were dismissed from meeting. Susanna later rejoined the Quaker church, but Noble apparently didn't. And he lived in Georgia as a farmer, and he died about 1800. So he would have been about 65 when he died. Susanna and her children sold the property in Georgia and moved to Indiana and colonized what was then the Northwest Territory. Um... Noble is not a direct ancestor of mine. My direct ancestor in this story is Noble's younger brother, Benjamin. Um, I don't know much about the family except what I deduced from reading the Butler book written by my kinsman, but apparently they were very ordinary people. Uh, They were middle class, farmers, craftsmen, and that's really all I know about them. So Noble did not become a cabinet maker. I don't know. The, the, well, the, the the actual Noble. I don't know. I decided on this career for him in my book because of reading the inventory of his estate. There were a lot of woodworking tools in, in his estate. Um, one of the brothers, I decided, must have been a cooper. And another one 
um, had a, a tavern. So each of them had a, a sideline besides mm-hmm. farming because farming brings income only at harvest time for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so they had to have some income from another source. And it seems to me, as I read the inventories of estate and the wills, that each of them had a different trade. Um, one was a shoemaker. So ah, so he may have done woodworking. Mm-hmm. Okay. But by the time he got to Georgia, he was definitely a farmer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you said he had 13 children. That 13 was, children. <laughs> I must have keep it, kept Susanna busy. <laughs> Susanna was a powerhouse woman. She deserves mm-hmm. a book of her own. Yeah. So are you going to write a book of her own? Maybe a short story. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, so one of the hard things, I would imagine, with all the research that you did was boiling it down into a book that is its a nice, reasonable length, but its there's no way that you can put 10 years of research no. on the page and have it come out as anything that, that people are actually going to be able to read in terms of a story. How did you go about deciding what was important? That's an interesting question, and it's a question that was discussed at one of the Highlights workshops that I went to. Mm -hmm. I went to a workshop called Writing Historical Fiction for Young Adults, and one of the things they warned us about was that when you do historical research, you find out all these fascinating, interesting things that make such good sense to you that you want to work them into your story. But unless they really relate to your story, you leave them out. And so as we workshopped our chapters at the Highlights Week, every once in a while someone would say, your research is showing you've put in something just gratuitously because you loved it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't further your plot. So it was, it was a discipline to try to figure out what really advanced the story and enriched the story and what was, look what I found out. I think that's a problem not only for young adults. I mean, it's it's a real weakness in uh, historical fiction yes. for adults, too. I mean, there have been many books, and I'm a professional historian, but even so, if I'm reading a story, I'm not reading it for research. So right. I do not want it to stop cold while somebody explains to me the entire politics of <laughs> <laughs> the Wars of the Roses or something yes. incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. Um so what else would you like to tell us about Noble or your book? Are there things that we haven't gotten to that are uh, really important for people to hear? I think as Noble meets this Indian on the mountainside and has a firsthand experience with a person of a different culture, his attitudes begin to change. Um, he can't think any longer in just general terms. He can't think Indians as as a unity because he's met one. He's looked into his eyes and they've communicated sort of. And in a sense, they work together to get that beech tree off of the Indian's foot. He worries about it the rest of the book. But um, I think... He he thinks of Indians as individuals after that. 
And I think that this is one of the things that I want readers to take from this book, because there are ethnic conflicts all over the world today and probably forever. But when you, when you look into somebody's eyes and have personal interaction with someone from another culture, you begin to question your preconceptions about that culture and your prejudices begin to crumble. Um, you begin to see their side of things for the first time. So that was an important thing for me in writing this book. Did you have to do research on Lenape culture as oh, well? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I did quite a lot on mm-hmm. the Lenape culture. And, um, and I found out a lot about them that I could not use in this story, about their interaction with the Iroquois Indians, which makes up a lot of the background for what's going on, but uh, is very complicated and um, takes place before this story begins and continues after this story. I met some Lenape Indians. Um, I found some wonderful books about them, and, um, and I have a great deal of respect for them now, before I hardly knew the name. There was an exhibit at um, the University of Pennsylvania a couple of years back. I think you were still here. It was before you went to Florida, right? I went to that ex- exhibition. It was wonderful. It was sort of the coming out of the Lenape tribe in Pennsylvania. At the end of the um, French and Indian War, the Treaty of Versailles, I think it was in 1763, part of the resolution was that the Indians had to leave Pennsylvania. And so they were forced out into Ohio, but they didn't all go. Some of them stayed in Pennsylvania and married German farmers up in the mountains, the endless mountains, and uh, kept their culture alive but hidden. That exhibition that you mentioned was called The Prophecy of the Fourth Crow. And uh, one of the Lenape who had a good German name, came to the Museum of um, Archaeology and Anthropology at UPenn and found an artifact in one of the exhibitions that they wanted to use in their maple syrup festival. And this person went to the head of the museum and said, could we borrow that? And that was the first time the museum had a clue that the Lenape culture was alive and well in Pennsylvania. So the museum cleverly said, yes, you may borrow it if one of our staff goes along. And the staff person that they sent was a graduate student in museum curating. And so here she got to go to this wonderful experience of their maple syrup festival and saw their culture alive and well and negotiated with them to do this exhibition. Can I talk about the prophecy of the fourth crow? Oh, absolutely. Please do. This this is so fascinating to me. This is a prophecy that the Lenape had for centuries without understanding it. They passed this, this prophecy along. Here it is. The first crow lived in harmony with Creator. Creator loosed a fox upon the earth. The second crow 
seeing the fox, sickened and died. The third crow, seeing his brother dead, went into hiding. The fourth crow emerged and lives in harmony with Creator saving the earth. And they passed this along for centuries without understanding it. In, 19, in the 1990s, they decided they finally understood the, the prophecy. The first crow was the Lenape before the coming of the Europeans. The fox that was loosed on the land was the Europeans. And the second crow sickened and died. 90% of the Native American population died with the coming of the Europeans. So the third crow goes into hiding. That would be um, when they were kicked out of Pennsylvania, I suppose. And then they decided that the Europeans, the Americans, had messed up the world so badly that it was their responsibility to come forward with their culture again and save the world. So that's what they're trying to do, and I wish them well. I'm Absolutely. so excited about mm-hmm. it. That's great. Um, so tell us, what are you going to do from here? Are you going to write about uh, Susanna or some of Molly or someone else, <laughs> or are you going off in a completely different direction? Well, it has taken so long to do the research and the writing of this book, and I'm very interested in the original thought that I had about my Quakers being involved in every war that ever came along in one way or another. And so I'm thinking, in the interests of time, perhaps I will do a collection of short stories about each generation and how they met the challenge of war in their time, because... There really has been a war in every generation of American history. And that conflict, well, I should back up and say, it's conflict that makes fiction. If you don't have a conflict, you don't have a story. People just sit around smiling and being happy or sit around being bored. But when conflict occurs, then a story begins. And it could be internal conflict, it could be conflict in a family, or the family and the meeting, it could be the conflict between the Quaker meeting and the larger society, it could be the conflict of the war itself. And so there are so many possibilities, and as I read the Butler book, each, I saw that each generation faced this conundrum differently. Um, during the Civil War, my great-grandfather was a surgeon for the North and was at the Battle of Resaca in Georgia. And according to the Butler book, there were members of the extended family from Pennsylvania and Georgia and Texas and Indiana at that one battle. And so my great-grandfather probably treated people from his own family, probably without even realizing it. Ah, that's interesting. That would make a good story, don't you think? It would. It would. So there are possibilities. And Mm -hmm. then later, um, General Smedley Darlington Butler was a brigadier general in the Marines, ran away from home at the age of 16 and joined the Marines to go with Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders 
in the Spanish-American War, loved the Marines, made a career of it, um, set up the hospital system in France during World War I, spent his retirement speaking out against U.S. military involvement in the affairs of other nations because it was only for business purposes. So lots of good stories there. There are lots of good stories there. Uh, well, Noble's family left Georgia, so you, you didn't have relatives on the other side of the Civil War. Oh, yes. They oh, did. you did. Yes, they didn't <laughs> all leave Georgia. And John McCowan's family stayed in Georgia. And then some of them went on to tennis, to um, Texas. So that would be an amazing story, too. Yeah. These yeah. families that, you know, you've got here is the beginning, in a sense, in the... In Pennsylvania in the Civil War, and then, mm-hmm. there, I mean, in the French and Indian War, and then you, presumably, John um, McCowan and Noble Butler were involved in the Revolutionary War. Since they lived through it, they wouldn't have much choice to avoid it. Yes, I started researching that, and um, Noble Butler's farm was close to Brandywine Battlefield in Pennsylvania. And because the Quakers wouldn't fight, it, this was a major defeat for General Washington's forces at the Battle of Brandywine. And there were dead bodies everywhere after the battle. And so the locals made the Quakers bury the dead. And I think, I don't know this, but I think that's why Noble moved to Georgia. I think from his, from what I put him through in this book... <laughs> He would have been so traumatized by Uh that, that he would have fled to Georgia. That's my premise. That's fascinating. So you could, I mean, if you wanted to, you could do an entire series on the Butler family. Yes. uh, In the French and Indian War, in the Revolutionary War, in the Civil War, and Mm -hmm. then... With Teddy Roosevelt, I'm sure they were involved in World War One and World War Two. Oh yes, pretty much everybody was. Yeah, mm-hmm. and right up to today, I'm sure some of my kinsmen are actively involved in Iraq. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh well, we're out of Iraq now. Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Yes. Um, thank you so much for talking with us. It's really been a great pleasure. Uh, as I mentioned early on, uh, Danit is one of the original members of my writer's group. And then she left us and went to Florida and we're all very sad. (laughs) So I knew Noble when he was barely in diapers and now here he is all grown up and on the page and he's changed a good deal during his journey. Yes, Uh, he has. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, your host, and today I've been talking with Janet Kastner Olszewski, author of The Snake Fence. You can find out more about her at www.janetolszewski.com. That's www.janetolszewski.com. Goodbye for now, and please join us again soon for more conversations on new books in historical fiction.